Welcome to Todd Talks, where my guest today is Professor N.T. Wright. Tom, as he is widely known, has served in many strategic and significant roles throughout his ecclesial and professorial career, including most recently as Bishop of Durham from 2003 to 2010 and research professor at the University of St. Andrews from 2010 to 2019. Currently, Tom is serving as Senior Research Fellow at Wycliffe Hall at the University of Oxford. I could go on and on about Tom's publications and accomplishments, but I'd like to spend our time together this afternoon asking Tom a few questions. Tom, thank you for the opportunity to chat with you in person. Thank you. It's delightful to be back here in Waco and, and at Truett again. Delighted to be here together. Tom, the last time we visited, we focused on your then forthcoming volume, God and the Pandemic. Now we are seemingly, I say seemingly, moving through this dreadful disease known to us commonly as COVID. And I wonder if you've had further reflections that you might care to share along these lines, perhaps uh, in response to the volume itself. Yeah, um, I, I have had a certain amount of response to the volume itself, but the conversation has gone on in the UK and I think in the US as well about how we should have responded to, to the sudden arrival of this disease, whether we were properly prepared, and I think universally the answer is no, we weren't, um, and whether if such a thing were to happen again we would have learnt anything from the experience. And particularly in the church this has been quite sharp because um, early on in Covid our government in the UK decided that church services were an absolute no-no. We just couldn't do anything, couldn't do funerals, couldn't do all sorts of things. Um, and certainly not ordinary Sunday services simply because, um, and I've heard this argued in significant detail, it was deemed impossible to clean the church as deeply as it needs to be, granted that droplets of um, infectious moisture may be splattered around without people realising it, between every service and every... So, but this horrified a lot of people in the UK, um, people for whom this church building is where they say their prayers, where they uh, stand at the altar, celebrate the Eucharist, not being able to do that. And a lot of people felt that the government overreacted and the church had gone along with that. Um, I'm split down the middle on this one, and the thing that goes with it, which is a very interesting conversation actually for all sorts of reasons, is um, if you have um, uh, an extended Zoom or Microsoft Teams meeting, which is a church service, particularly if you have a communion service, the breaking of bread, is it actually a real communion service if you say to people at home, just go online, join us, and get some bread and wine and put it on the table in front of you, etc. Um, what sort of a precedent are we setting here? Um, because the Eucharist is supposed to be partly about the recognition of the body of Christ, which is the gathering of the faithful, the faithful in that place. And I think we need to stand back and think, um, we may have learnt something from that. And people have said, of course, far more people were at that service than would have been there at the equivalent service in church. And I want to say that's a good thing ish but I'm then quite worried that um, people might think oh well, that's all right I can just go to church by I don't even need to get out of bed just switch the computer on and I'll be there with them and I want to say there is something which we would be in danger of losing and so that's the kind of close-up ecclesial question which goes with the larger question where people have said 
you're taking away our freedoms and so on, to which my answer might be, yes, your freedom to pollute not only yourself but mm -hmm. others as well. So there are huge societal questions yes. and then there are particular ecclesial focuses of that. Yes, and the call and the volume to lament really did register with folks, didn't it? I, I think the, um, I mean, obviously that was my first reaction, as you may know, that when something like this happens, you don't look around for people to blame. Um, that may come, but you actually say, we hold in the presence of God the, not only the sorrow at what's happening, but the fact that we don't know what's going on. We don't understand it. And that's the Psalm 44 thing, and it's the Romans 8 thing, and so on. And that I found, um, I, I had sort of worked that through and written that up and spoken about it here and there. And then, lo and behold, just when I was getting used to doing that, we then have had the, the war in Ukraine, which is obviously ongoing as we're recording this. And again, I found myself saying, I have no idea what's going on, how long it's going to be going on, why it's happening, but I lament with my brothers and sisters in Eastern Europe. Tom, and I gather that we're just beginning to explore and think through how COVID and its repercussions are going to be with us for a long time. Yeah, I think that's right. And I hope and pray that people around the world are, are working at every level on it, not just for vaccine um, treating what's there already, but thinking into the causes that, as far as we know, whether it's laboratories or whether it's accidents or whatever. Um, but also, I think the strategy for how to deal with something like this uh, at national levels, and, and, and no doubt in the United States you have such a large nation, also the state levels. What sort of things do we need to insist on? What sort of things do we need to give as advisory, etc.? But then in the church, um, how do we how do we teach one another again to lament? Uh, I've had a sense that um, the black churches know a lot more about lament than many of us do, and also that people in other parts of the world in general where the church has suffered a lot, lament is built into their repertoire. And we in the churches of the, the so-called Enlightenment world, you know, the Western Europe and North America, we, we are always in danger of forgetting that and thinking that the main thing to do in church is to celebrate. Well, of course we celebrate. But, but the Bible is full of lament as well as celebration, and I think we need to reflect on how to incorporate that together. Mm. Well, Tom, in the context of the pandemic, you've been hard at work. <laughs> and uh, what projects have you been putting your, uh, your, your, your energies toward? I, it's, it's funny, the last year or two have been so odd with the pandemic, and I know other people have found this as well that whereas I can tell you exactly what I was doing in 2017, 2018, mm. 2019, 2020 and 21, a kind of a black hole. Yes. I have to think quite hard. I mean, the little book on the pandemic I wrote just as I was finishing off the commentary on Galatians. Um, since then, my son Oliver edited, um, he, he took all my popular books in the last 20 years, went through them like a dose of sorts and pulled out paragraphs and organized them into a sequence. And then he and I worked together on how to shape that. And that has become the book called On Earth as in Heaven, which was a complete surprise. Um, and I didn't know that it was his idea or the publishers. It certainly wasn't mine, <laughs> but it's, it's a nice book and he's done a good job with it. I've also been, I've been on a few articles I've written. Um, I wrote the foreword for a recent book by my friend and colleague David Moffat, a collection of articles. Um, I've done one or two Festschrift articles, including one recently which I was very excited about on, about on Romans 15. So I, I've been quite busy. 
but um, since Maggie and I moved to Oxford three years ago, um, there's been considerably more uh, on a regular basis family activity because we're now just down the road from um, our youngest son and his three, his wife and three children. So instead of being 400 miles away, we're um, just one or two miles away. So we see a lot more of them. Uh, which is a wonderful thing. It is. It's yeah. great. Well, speaking of your move to Oxford, you now find yourself as uh, a senior research fellow at Wycliffe Hall. Uh, what are you doing there? <laughs> it's a good question. I mean, the, the, the most obvious high-profile thing I do is once a year I do a sequence of Bible expositions. Wycliffe has Bible expositions every Monday morning as well as their regular curriculum. And so each year I've done um, those Monday mornings through one term in the year. So. Um, I did Philippians last year and I did Romans chapter 8, which was a sort of a short version of what I've just done here at Truett. Um, I forget what I did the first year, I simply can't remember. That's the pandemic for me, <laughs> I'm just not sure what happened there. The compression um, of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But then um, I also do one-off lectures and one-off sermons and, um, and seminars and so on. And um, sometimes after the end of official term, they have like mini conferences and I'll come in and do a morning's teaching on such and such, whatever it is. And also, which is really fun, um, I am available for students, particularly graduate students, uh, who come and or send me emails or knock on my door and say, look, I'm working on this project. I wonder if we could just think through this. So we'll have a cup of coffee and we'll talk about the project. And because I'm not supervising them and I'm not going to be examining them, mm. I kind of relax about it. I sort of go out somewhere for a, for a coffee and somewhere nice. And, and that's just great. And, and I, in some, you know, having taught in Oxford for many years through the tutorial system, way one-on-one, -on -one, I feel as though I'm now at last doing what the tutorials really mm. should have been doing, which is having an excited conversation with a bright young person about what they've been reading. And that's, that's just, that makes the world go round for me. Well, and for them, I can well, only possibly, imagine. Possibly. <laughs> and, and Tom, it must be just remarkable to come back to a place where you yourself had done your <laughs> seminary training mm. and to be yeah, able to yeah. pour back into the life of an institution that has poured so much yes. into your own life. Yes, yes, it is, it is. And Wycliffe hasn't changed that much. The food is much better now than it was 50 <laughs> years ago. But the chapel is just the same, the same seats and the same um, east window and so on. So it feels very familiar. Um, the worship style is a bit different because yes. a lot of the seminarians now come from much more free church styles of worship. So sometimes the music drives me nuts. Sometimes, <laughs> but, um, uh, but that's fine. We are where we are, liturgically. And, and there's a splendid staff team led by mm. my old friend Michael Lloyd. But they've got some excellent people on staff. And it's just great to feel the college actually thriving at the moment because not all seminaries are doing as you will be aware yes and so yes it's it's it is good and also of course I did my undergrad work in Oxford so um, I cycle around town I walk around town the college where I was an undergraduate is just a few hundred yards from our front door um, Maggie and I if we go to one of our favorite restaurants we walk through Radcliffe Square past the Radcliffe camera da, 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 and I appreciate Oxford more and more the older I get. The architecture and the whole style of it is just extraordinary. 
Was it Yogi Berra that said deja vu all over again? All over again. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we well, see, this is Oxford 3.0 for yes. us because we were there in the 70s. Yes. Then we were there in the late 80s, early 90s. And now here we are again. Yeah. And, uh, the gift that keeps on giving, well, as it were. There are times when it feels like going back to the house you were born in. You know? yeah. and, uh, I have vivid memories you know, of somebody that I met on that street corner. Or this was where I had the conversation with so-and-so. And your memories from your late teens, early 20s kind of stay with you. Yes. in a way that memories from your 40s and 50s probably don't. But so that's, that's been good, mostly very wholesome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we talked about the fact that you had done this project or that project during the pandemic, and here we are on the other side, hopefully. Uh, what is occupying your time now, Tom? What are your well, present, your current writing projects? Well, well it's a good question. Um, recently, I did a lot of work on <clears throat> the, the lecture that I was doing for Mark Lanier last week, and then in transforming the lectures I've done at Wycliffe into what I've just done here at Truett. So that's taken me the last little while, such free time as I've had. Um, <laughs> because my younger son has just moved into Oxford from being slightly outside, and that's been complicated with their children. Maggie and I have been doing quite a bit of stuff. They thought they were gonna be staying with us for, I think, two nights during the move of house. And because various things went wrong with the system, they were with us for three weeks, I think. And so we were doing childcare, homeschooling, um, piano practice, <laughs> school run. Um, and that was great, um, but it's been quite full on. I am supposed to be finishing mm. a book, which is the sequel to Surprised by Hope, called Surprised by the God of Hope. Okay. Um, I wrote the first half of that last year. I thought I was going to finish it last year. It just didn't happen for some reason. I wasn't looking at the right moment. And it just <laughs> didn't work. So I really do need to finish that this year. Um, and uh, my publisher wants me to do a kind of an academic autobiography. In other words, not a full, wow. on, not a full on autobiography. Wow. I, I think if I was to do that, it would have to be buried for 50 years before it could be released to, to spare the blushes of the guilty or even the innocent. But um, I, you know, it's, it's a kind of an odd feeling. I look back yeah. now over 50 years and I discover I have been around and taking part in mm. some quite big shifts yes. in New Testament scholarship, yes. which, like the pandemic, we didn't see coming. Right. Um, and it might be fun to tell that story. So um, I, I've, I've started it about 10 times, okay. uh, going back several years, and each time I've put it aside. And just recently I printed out all those different startings. I quite enjoyed reading them, but I have no idea yet how to put them all together. So, but I'm hoping to, to do that before too long. Well, obviously, I don't get a vote, but I would cast a vote, uh, yes, and uh, maybe that's what a good editor is for. Yeah, well, quite, quite. Yes, yes, I think that's right. I think that's right. So, uh, Tom, um, I'm, I'm wondering, uh, so you've been going uh, long and hard at this. Uh, <laughs> uh, do, do you anticipate uh, slowing down? Uh, In a sense, I have slowed down a bit, I think. I mean... When I was in, you know, my 40s and 50s, um, people, colleagues used to say to me, you, are, you Tom, are blessed with, with high energy levels. Mm. And I'd never thought of it like that. I just do what I did. Yes. And I enjoy life in all sorts of ways and go and play golf or music or whatever. It never occurred to me that I was actually exhibiting signs of high energy. It's just how it was. Now I realize in my 70s that I have slowed down a bit. I find it very difficult if I've done seven or eight hours work during a day to go back and do another three hours work in the evening, which is what I would often do. Wow. I mean, I, I remember 
discovering is, is like an obvious truth which had never occurred to me before when I was writing The Resurrection of the Son of mm. God, mm. that if I did another three hours in the evening, that was three hours writing I didn't have to do the next morning. I was actually <laughs> further, further ahead. So I, I was often working like 14 hours a uh, days. Um, I couldn't do that anymore. Um, uh, I, I, I would just keel over. But um, And of course, poor Maggie had to put up with me being a 14-hour day person and, and now I think we, we rather enjoy. There are one or two television shows we watch. We hardly ever used to do that before, but uh, etc, etc. And particularly with grandchildren, we're able to do stuff um, with the family. Yeah, which is tremendous. So Tom, um, a rather serious question here. Um, amid the war in Ukraine, gun violence in the US, and political polarization, in so many Western nations and the like, how might Christ followers put feet to the prayer, thy kingdom come on earth as it yeah, is in heaven? Yeah. It's a great question because so often in the Western world, in the post-enlightenment Western world, we have very deliberately separated church and state. And if anyone in church tells anyone in state what they ought or ought not to be doing. People say, oh no, that's off limits, you mustn't do that. You teach people to pray, we'll run the world, mm. thank you very much. Um, that is an enlightenment heresy, and uh, we've all bought into it. I mean, I know in theory in England we have an established church, but actually the reality on the ground isn't very different from the states where mm. actually you have a, an official separation. Mm. But I notice that the separation is porous. Actually, <laughs> the, the things, things happen rather differently. And I think we're all in that mess mm. together. While we're thinking about that, um, the one bright light from the last generation, of course, is Desmond Tutu in South Africa. Mm. Because I remember well in the mid-1970s when apartheid was at its height, when Western commentators, journalists and politicians assumed that there was going to be a massive civil war in South Africa and there were going to be millions of people killed and it would go on and on and on and eventually some new settlement would emerge. Now, South Africa is still, I'm told, I haven't been there recently, a, a dangerous place and not a very happy or healthy place. However, they had an extraordinary revolution which took place basically because A, Nelson Mandela, B, Desmond Tutu, with others alongside them, but those two characters. And they were both committed to peaceful transition, and Tutu was particularly committed to this idea. Who could have thought of it, of a commission of truth and reconciliation? Mm. Bringing white thugs and black thugs to repentance, restoration, and now we move forward. Now... Do we need that in Ukraine? Oh, please, God, of course we do. Mm. Do we need it in Northern Ireland? We mm. do, mm. because things are precarious still yeah. there. It could yeah. flare up again. Yeah. Do we need it here, here, there, there? Yes. And I think the church has forgotten that one of its primary roles mm. is to speak the truth to power. Mm. Jesus said when the Spirit comes, not just you will have a nice time, <laughs> when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world mm. of sin and righteousness and judgment, John 16. Mm. How does the Spirit do that? By God's people living and speaking in such a way as to hold up a mirror to power and say there is a different way of doing this, being human, a thing. We've forgotten that. And it seems to me we kind of urgently need to recover it mm -hmm. because we live in very dangerous times. I think, I feel now, more dangerous times now than at any time since perhaps the Cuban Missile Crisis, mm -hmm. which I only just remember, I was 13 at the time. <laughs> so, you know, this is, this is a tough time. So frequently in your writings, Tom, you speak about the church's vocation. Yeah. 
yeah, and yeah, this yeah. is part and parcel of yeah, such, yeah, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is, it is. And, and this week, as you know, I've been speaking about the church's vocation from Romans 8, where the vocation is not that the church has all the answers and has mm. to ride out and just implement it. Whenever the church has tried to do that, it's fallen flat on its face and made matters worse. But it has to start back where we were a minute ago with lament, yes. that Romans 8 talks about the church being the people who are in, in prayer, sometimes wordless, agonized prayer, at the place where the world is in pain. Mm -hmm. Now, I have Christian friends, you have Christian friends, who are in places like Ukraine, who, well, they know they want to pray for peace, but they have no idea whether they should pray for this to happen, that to happen. Yeah. You just have to stand yeah. in the presence of God with the pain yes. of the world on your heart, yes. believing that the Spirit is calling out to the Father from within that pain. Boy, that's tough. Mm -hmm. And it gets to us. I mean, it gets to all of us in depression, in temptation, in family troubles, in whatever it may be, in job difficulties. Um, and when that happens, we have to hold on to it and pray that somehow God will be working out new ways forward. And mm -hmm. uh, who knows? We don't yeah. know. And convinced and comforted all along by uh, the conviction that God is holding us. Uh, well, absolutely. The, the, the one who searches the hearts knows the mind of the Spirit. And so we pray in, in the dark, but believing that God is there in the dark with us in the person of the Holy Spirit, and that ultimately, Romans 8, mm -hmm. nothing in all creation shall mm -hmm. separate us from the love of mm -hmm. God in Messiah Jesus our Lord. And so we, we hold on to that. Yes. And I think we in the West have often um, taken it a bit too easily because especially since the end of the old Cold War, mm -hmm. um, we've thought, yeah, we Western folk, we got it sussed. And if we're Christians as well, well, hallelujah. And now it turns out mm -hmm. things are not nearly so easy. Fortunately, the gospel is there as it were ahead of us. And the love of God is not phased by this problem. Mm. Tom, I'm going to ask you to pray for us in just a minute as we close our conversation. But before I do, I wonder if you could just share... Um, what do you enjoy doing? Uh, I mean, in, in addition to, to writing things from which we have greatly profited um, yeah. uh, and, and speaking in ways that people find compelling and the work that you've done through NT Write Online well, and uh, yeah, just, yeah. just absolutely amazing. But uh, when, when Tom gets some time to <laughs> himself, uh, what does he enjoy doing? Well, uh, as you know, I, I, in theory, play golf. I mean, sadly, since we've been back in Oxford, the pandemic, they shut the golf courses. How crazy was that? Yeah. Um, and of I all places. Well, of, of all places. <laughs> but so I haven't been playing golf recently, and my, my knee is giving me grief, and I'm not sure if I could take a proper swing at the moment. Hopefully that will come back. Uh, music remains hugely important. Being back in Oxford... There's the Sheldonian Theatre, short walk from our front door, symphony concerts. So obviously that wasn't happening during the pandemic. But as soon as the as soon as the, the, the brakes came off the pandemic restrictions, then Maggie and I have been in there for, for, for symphony concerts and the like. And in Merton College Chapel, and I'm an honorary fellow of Merton, they have a wonderful choir and the music that goes with the liturgy, and sometimes they take that out into concert halls as well. Just we've been basking in that. I mean, uh, the, the, the symphony orchestra that plays in the Sheldonian, they had a concert a few months ago which included um, uh, Tchaikovsky's Sixth Symphony, the Pathétique. Now, I've known the Pathétique since I was in my early teens, and I, I know its particular dynamics. I've, it's the first time I've ever actually seen and heard it live, and seen was part of the point that when you see in that third movement 
and the whole orchestra really going for it and looking eager and the conductor egging them on. Boy, it's like watching a football match. I mean, it's just so exciting, the drama of it. And you feel the energy. So, so that, that's been really terrific. Mm. Um, along with that, totally different thing, but equally exciting in its way, <laughs> having these small people called grandchildren crawling all over you. And my littlest one, Jesse, who's 18 months now, um, for some reason he tunes into me. I think my voice is very like his father's voice. Ah. So I think from a very early age, he kind of knew I was okay. As he reminded me of, uh, I was reminding him of his dad. So he has stayed as my pal, and apparently, if he comes into our house, if Maggie brings him in, he straight away looks in my study, and if I'm not there, his face falls. Oh, so my I feel, goodness. Oh. So, you know, this <laughs> and, is. Yeah. And then you're crestfallen. <laughs> exactly. I get this message. Jesse was very sad that you're not here. So, so that's, that's been great. And uh, uh, being able just to spend downtime with them and not do anything in particular, just be with them and play little games and so on, water the garden with him, whatever. <laughs> that's, that's great. That's wonderful. So, when you're not traveling to speak, uh, which is less and less yes, these which days. Is less and less, yes. uh, you sometimes do travel within the British yeah. Isles. Well, yeah, I mean, as you know, Scotland is very important to us. We loved our time in St Andrews and miss it badly, and especially we miss the sea being by mm. the ocean. Um, and we have this little plot of land on the Isle of Harris. We've been going to Harris for the last seven or eight, nine years regularly, having found paradise, why would you go anywhere else? Um, it's a quite a chilly paradise. It's not exactly like Texas in terms of weather. Um, but uh, God willing, as we speak, the builder is working on the foundation of the house that we want to have there. Maggie and I are going up, all being well in 10 days' time. And the we have planning permission. We have the craftsmen working on the bits and pieces. We are hoping that within the next six to 12 months, there will be a house there with a wonderful view out over the sea. And we will hopefully spend perhaps half the year there. So the idea at the moment is to be in Oxford during term and in Harris during the vacations. We'll see. It's a long way away. You, you know, it's a two day drive yeah. or, or a, a flight. But boy, when you get there, you just look at the sea and you sniff the air. You think, yeah, this is, this is worth it. <laughs> so. Worth the trip and really quite a contrast with the Oxford oh, of the day in and day total, out. Total contrast, total yeah. contrast. And, and I mean, I know sometimes people who live the dream and go to the place they've been on vacation and make it their home. It, it doesn't always work, yeah. but, but we, we have a strong sense that we just have to, have to do this now. Mm. And the kids love it. Yeah. And the house will be maybe a six minute walk from a lovely big sandy beach waves rolling in. Oh, and just across the, the, the main road of the island comes just in front of our plot of land and just then you go down to the beach. But the other side of the road is an old prehistoric stone circle. Um, you just see the stones at sort of ground level. But then there's a, a pillar about seven or eight feet tall, which, which is a, a 500 year old standing, 5,000 year old standing stone and corresponds to another one about yeah. six miles up the road. They were sort of beacons or whatever. So there's, there's a kind of sense that this was somebody's holy place wow. before Abraham. You know. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? My goodness, which yeah. I've never heard of. Actually. Right, right, right. Yeah. Oh, Scotland's got a lot of them on yes. the west coast. These, the Callanish stones. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. that's in the Isle of Lewis, which okay. is the next island up. Okay. And these are like small outposts of that kind of place. And the Callanish stones is amazing. Have you been there? No, oh, I've not. Oh, these are huge, great monoliths. And they are, 
I think, 5,000 years old, and they're in the shape of a cross. My goodness. I know. You think, oh, <laughs> what is going on here? And so yeah. you just stand there, and, you th and it, it feels strange. It, it, uh, the first time we went, Maggie really didn't want to get out of the car. She said, I, I'm not sure. I, I, it was kind of yeah. a strange sense of presence, not mm. quite sure what's going mm. on. Mm. Mm. Um, we've been back with the kids and so on. Anyway, so it is a wonderful place, a historic, prehistoric place, uh, as well as being geographically amazing. Mm. Azure sea, white beaches, um, you know, lovely waves, mountains. <laughs> well, Tom, I can't thank you enough for the time that you've not only invested in this conversation, but thank you for uh, your teaching of Romans 8. It has oh, just it's been, been... It's been a delight to do it. it, it I mean, folks from everywhere have descended Surely. upon, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, Waco for four <laughs> days of teaching with Tom Wright. It's been uh, an absolute blast. Well, thank you. It's been great fun for me. Thank you. Tom, would you say a word of prayer sure, for us? Sure. Father, thank you for this place. Thank you for, uh, for Waco, for all its, its checkered history, but all that you're now doing here. Thank you for uh, Baylor and for Truett particularly. Thank you for bringing Todd here. We pray for your blessing upon this school and that you will be training people here to go out and bear witness to the gospel, to the whole gospel, which goodness knows we need so much. And uh, we, we, we thank you for the work of all those who are involved with the different audiovisual things and so on that are going on. Thank you that so many people now are using contemporary technology to spread your word in creative and innovative ways. We, we pray for them and for the success of that. And we pray, Father, for your church and your world. We pray that we will learn the lessons again and again in every generation of being the people of prayer at the place where the world is in pain of being the people who reflect your glory into the world, people who reflect the praises of the world and the pain of the world back into your presence. So, Father, make us in every generation, but right now, we need it so badly right now, to be the royal priesthood, to pray and then to speak as you give us utterance so that we may be faithful to your calling and cheerful in your service and fruitful for your kingdom. As we pray in Jesus' name.